3: Hi, I'm Molly Fast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds.
2: And Senator Bob Menendez has been charged with acting as a foreign agent. We have such an interesting show today. First, we'll talk to Ruth Ben-Ghiat about how all the criminals in the Republican Party play right into the authoritarian handbook. Then we'll talk to lawyer Josh Koskip, who is suing gun companies in order to enact justice for shooting survivors. But first, we have the host of the Time of Monsters, the nation's Jeet here.
3: Welcome to Fast Politics Frequent Flyer, my close personal friend, Jeet here.
4: Good to be here. In every sense of the word. <laughs>
3: well, we are so happy to have you. Unfucking believable. What is happening right now? I'm going to read you a tweet. Dave Wasserman, you may know him as Mr. I've Seen Enough. He is a pollster. This is his tweet, which, if I were a Republican donor or a member of Congress, this would make my blood run cold. The reality may be that no R can get to 217.
4: That's quite a tweet. <laughs> Which I think think mathematically, he's exactly right. In the sense of of the candidates running for the position, there is enough, like, sort of never Scalese people and enough never Jordan people that, yeah, you don't get to the 217 that you need. So mathematically, there can be no speaker. There cannot be a speaker. Right. Well, there
3: can be McHenry forever. Yeah. So the story here is the Republicans in the House kicked out Kevin McCarthy under the arm of my man, and he is neither mine nor a man, Matt Gates. He opened the gates of hell. He got <laughs> rid of Kevin McCarthy, and he left his caucus in nowhere land.
4: Yeah, no, no, that that is exactly what happened. I mean, I think it's worth thinking about structurally, like, why they can't get to two seventeen. The point I always emphasize is, like, Nancy Pelosi had a smaller majority than they have now. Not only was she able to, like, get elected speaker and hold on to her position and not get kicked out, she was actually able to, like, legislate in a very fractured caucus with, like, you know, real political disagreements, always, like, find the point of agreement that everyone could come around to and do the very essential skill which my girls are in uh, grade three and learn uh, have been learning for the last few years counting addition <laughs> just be able to like, like figure out like do i actually have the votes for this or do i not have the votes for this which is a much rarer skill than one would think one can govern as long as you don't have like a caucus full of like really crazy people like <laughs> i think the core problem the further problem i think structurally which i don't think we're talking about is fundraising one reason why nancy pelosi could hold things together was she's yes. just she's just a monster she still is you know she's still a those monster of fundraising and very useful for members of congress well it's happening on both the democratic and republican side but you know you get people who are like very good at working outside that system and you know fundraising through social media appeal and getting s- small donors but on, right. on the democratic side the people who are really good at that aoc being a primary example Uh, They're pretty responsible. Like they're still party people and still understand you have to work within the party. On the Republican side, you have people who can fundraise and not be dependent on the speaker. And you get more fundraising if you stand up for the speaker because the Republican base is trained with this narrative that the establishment is bad. You know, whoever the speaker is, they want to like corral people for corrupt purposes. And uh, here's that heroic. Uh, Matt Gates. There are some pictures of him with young women, but I...
3: The FBI had an investigation into him. They declined to press charges, yeah. which I guess in this Republican Party is as good as having never had an FBI investigation into you.
4: But now, you know, like because he is the, the underdog, the maverick, the guy who's standing up to the establishment, he's getting like a ton of money, right? He's doing like fundraising all through this and becomes the big hero of the base by doing stuff that is destructive. So basically you have a fundraising model and a, and a political model that is just works against governance. Like the like leave ideology aside. Just works against the basic function of turning on the lights, uh, you know, opening the door, turning on the lights, like yeah. getting the day started. Like They, they cannot, that sees all of that as a deep state plot, you know, like, like it's a deep state plot to have government. Yes,
3: to have a government at all. Any, <laughs> government. any government.
4: Yeah, that is a very bad situation. And to have like, you know, one of the two major parties and the party that happens to hold by a slim majority, the House, literally structurally incapable of governing. At a time, which, you know, like, I know we're not going to talk about this, but which, like, very serious stuff is happening in the world, right? Like, like very serious life and death issues are yeah. uh, happening in places like Ukraine and Israel and in Gaza. Um, you know, like, it's actually good to have government. This is my bottom line. I actually believe. It is good to have government. I am, you know, not an anarchist. I have friends that are anarchists. But uh, certainly, I think even my anarchist friends don't want whatever the hell it is that Matt Gates is doing, right? It's bad that you have one party that cannot govern. And and the other point I would make is I kind of wish Democrats would make that point a bit more.
3: Oh, man, me too. So right now we are in this Republican fuckery. You got Steve Scalise, who the strike against him is that he compared himself to David Duke without the baggage and spoke at a white nationalist convention and is very much... Not on the right side of history when it comes to not being an enormous white supremacist. And you have him. So that's one side. But he is actually like a Republican sort of more, despite his white nationalist forays, he's actually more of a traditional Republican than the guy he's running against. So I would like to take a moment to think about that for a second. And, you know, we had a guest on here, really smart guy, Dana Milbank, who was saying that actually what you see with this Republican leadership contest is the party's move to the right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Scalise would have been just an inconceivable Speaker of the House. 10 years ago, like the that every decade the party gets further and further to the right. But then Jordan, who is thought of as the insurgent, who has worked very hard to try not to get the 2020 election certified, big election liar. That guy, he can't get the votes. And there's a lot of really bad behavior on both sides. And there are looking at a list here from Hallie Talbot from CNN, who has listed the undecided big mads in the caucus, which includes some of the people you would think, including Andy Biggs, a person who has also had forays into white nationalism, and Ken Buck, who was actually a little bit more principled than a lot of those guys.
4: so uh, they are big mad. Yeah. No, I mean, the party has definitely moved to the, the right, but it's been happening, as you, you indicated, for a long time. And I think there's, you know, like some uh, very good discussions about the sort of roots of all this. scotch um, Scotchball, who's like a you know, terrific political sociologist at Harvard, did an interview with Politico, which she was like pointing towards. The Tea Party is a big inflection point. But I think actually, like, you know, my disagreement with that is I actually think Newt Gingrich was the, you know, like an equally important inflection point.
3: Right. No, no, I agree. Newt Gingrich was the moment.
4: But I think if you look at what happened to Gingrich, uh, and I think it's worth recalling because a lot of what we're seeing now was innovated then, including the use of the government shutdown as a tactic when... Republicans control the House and Democrats have the presidency. Gingrich rode to power, rode to becoming the speaker through like riling up the most right wing members of his caucus against the so-called corrupt establishment, who are people who are like willing to make deals with Bill Clinton or even willing to make deals with George W. Bush and sign things like the um, Americans with Disability Act. And so there's a, a real faction in the 1990s who are basically like lovers of militia. I don't know if you, you remember these uh, these characters, but you know they, they were the ones who saw Ruby Ridge and Waco, Texas, as right. a great as scenes a, of martyrdom. It's a good idea? <laughs> yeah, or as, yeah. as heroic Americans, you know, like standing up to the uh, evils of the federal government. Gingrich deliberately riled those people up, and you know, used the power of agitating the base to like scare this existing Republican establishment, demonize them, get them out, and then he became speaker. But then what he ended up with was, you know, like a caucus he couldn't control because it included like, you know, these riled up fringe characters who could use all the anger that they had that Gingrich had harnessed and use it against him. And then he like, you know, repeatedly had problems of like sort of governance. So so the structure has been in place and built since the 1990s. And we see it replicated time and again. You know, I think the only way to kind of break this structure is if it becomes a political issue. And it becomes not just treated as it is in the mainstream media, like, oh, look at those clowns in Congress. They're clowning again and actually becomes what it is, which is that you have one party that is functionally unable to govern and it is very much in contrast to the other party. And again, I would want to have a Democratic leadership that really makes this the issue, that really like, you know, says it's not the MAGA Republicans or the extreme Republicans. The Republican Party itself is functionally unable to govern, and you know, like, we'll give you a party that can a govern and a, b is ideologically diverse, and we'll find this sort of median point. So, if if you're a more moderate voter and you want a party that can negotiate but also work with different factions, well, there's only one party that does that. Yeah, exactly, and it's not even close. Yeah, it's a very stark difference. I think domestically, it's bad enough. I think the chances of another government shutdown are like huge. Right. Oh, no question. But then there's also, you know, like stuff that's happening in the world. And again, you know, I mean, one can have disagreements with Biden about Ukraine, about handling Israel, Palestine. But on some level, you have to believe that the United States needs a government. So it yeah. actually needs like.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying this, but I want to say it because I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's horrific.
4: It's horrific. A- yeah. yeah. So, so, so you actually need ambassadors to these countries, right? Right.
3: And that's a real fucking problem that we're having now, which is there's no ambassador to Qatar. There's no ambassador to Israel. All of these military posts are empty. You can't run a country this way, which is part of the
4: point, right? You need that, uh, you know, like a military where the officer class knows that there's a regular accepted pathway of uh, like uh, uh, going up the ranks and that, you know, as people get old and retire or move on, if you follow all the rules, you will rise and not have.
3: Senator from Alabama
4: who lives in Florida keep
3: you from getting your job,
4: right? These are all like important things. And like, I think the people who follow this program understand this and, you know, like, you know, you and I understand it, but like to the degree that this is like being a message that's getting out there, I'm not sure about that. I, I know what you think.
3: I think this is absolutely a democratic messaging problem. The truth is one party is normal and the other party is completely batshit and they want to destroy the federal government. And I mean, I interviewed Randy Weingarten yesterday. Randy Weingarten, one of my favorite people. She's the head of the teachers union. Uh, and I don't know if she's the head of the ADF or the UTA or she's stopped, and, and, you know, and she's taking a. Break. But the point is, she has been demonized and Mike Pompeo made threats against her. And, you know, what she said, which is so true, is that these people want to end public schools because they don't like the idea of the government doing for people.
4: Yeah, I don't know. No. I mean, that's exactly right. In some ways, what has to understand for them to some degree, this is paid off. We kind of look at it as a you know, freak show. But, you know, if your goal is actually to make the government dysfunctional to destroy, as Steve Bannon likes to say, the administrative state, then actually, you know, they're kind of winning. They're they're getting what they want. And, you know, like, I think if it were put to the American public that this is actually what they want, it's not like lower taxes, you know, like a more streamlined government or things that, you know, like a wide swath of the population might agree with is actually like government dysfunction and no government. That would clarify a lot of things for uh, voters.
3: Yeah. I think that's right. Democrats have real trouble when they get this opportunity to message being able to do it. And I think part of it is this fundamental belief that because Democrats are the good guys, they don't have to sell what they're doing the way Republicans do. And I think that's ultimately really wrong.
4: I think that's part of it. I mean, I think the other part of it is that Biden has decided to go along with a kind of mixed message of, like, saying, you know, it's a MAGA Republicans that are bad. But, you know, like, I'm a guy who's worked with Republicans before. Like I worked with Thurmond To appeal to those voters that are still nostalgic, that it is a sort of, like, restorationist vision. Like, you know, we can turn back the clock and, like, you know, go back to, like, I don't know when, like, 1982 or whatever, or, like, 1978. Pip O'Neill would go have a beer with Ronald Reagan, and, and things were good, and then we were all little children, and happy. Uh, it just like, I just don't think I don't think that I mean I don't think it was that good to begin with. And I right. certainly don't think that we're ever gonna go back. It's an unwillingness to give up to that illusion that the that, you know, older type of politics can be returned to. You have to have people that like see things clearly. There's a generational divide. I mean once he's that in the way that people like Gretchen Whitmer is uh, governing, that you know, like the hardened Democrats who have like been in the sort of trenches of these like purple states and have seen you know how extreme the Republicans can be, like they they don't want to go back to that. They think like we get a narrow majority, we govern, we we give our people what they want.
3: Like in Minnesota. Um, the, one of the things I want to ask you, though, I'm going to push back for a minute. So I have this theory about Biden. One of the reasons why Biden has continually overperformed at all his elections is because the voters are older than we think they are. And they vote in a sort of older way than we think they do. So, for example, I think that these Republicans need to lose until... They understand that their anti-democratic ideas are a shanda, as we say in Judaism. There is no place for anti-democracy in the United States of America. But there are older people who have a sort of like fantasy of harmony and that playing on that is actually good for elect, good electoral politics. Yes, no, discuss. You have 20 seconds.
4: But I think there is some truth to that. Uh, but I think where it's a situation's in flux. And yeah, you know, like I think those older voters are getting older. Uh, and I think there's a generational divide. And I think going to the next election, Biden's real weakness is among young voters. They want more fight.
3: Yes, they want more fight. Cheat here. Thank you.
4: Always oh, great. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times.
1: With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Ruth Ben-Ghiat is the author of Strongman, Mussolini in the present, and the publisher of the Substack Lucid.
3: Welcome to Fast Politics, Ruth. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to talk to you about what you see going on right now. The fundamental thing that I think is so interesting, which you write about and talk about, is this idea that there is a real, that we really have one party that no longer believes in the fundamental tenets of democracy. Can you
6: talk about that? It's very shocking and it's a process and it's been going on since, I mean, some people say Trump was able to kind of capture the party because it was ready to be captured by an authoritarian. It was already moving toward a kind of illiberal political culture and the Tea Party was a big symptom. But Trump really accelerated that by being the charismatic demagogue and you know, shifting the political culture of the GOP to authoritarian methods and philosophy and the leader-party relationship that he imposed, where loyalty was what mattered, not expertise, and no internal dissent, you know, follow him or else, intimidation. That kind of accelerated it and prepared it to participate in his attempt to overthrow the government and the election, so, it's been a long process, but now we are in a stage where the GOP is an autocratic party quite openly, and its allies are other autocratic parties and governments around the world. It's quite open about that, too. And it's the people who are finding favor, the people who are rising to the top, as we saw in the GOP debates and the selection of the House Speaker. They're people who are Believing in violence, who are identifying themselves as extremists, who don't believe in transparency, accountability, or any other democratic principles.
3: I think that's a really interesting. An important point there, because this is sort of Trumpism continues, right? Yes. I mean, I guess it started before Trump, it sounds like, from what you're saying. And and that makes the most sense. But this kind of continuation of it is really this obsession with the kind of
6: violence. Talk to me about that. Really, what's happened is the GOP has kind of internalized the principles of the coup. What is a coup? It's a violent strike at a government. It says that we don't believe anymore in democratic methods of, of transitions of power. And Matt Gates said this at the Iowa State Fair. He said only force will bring change to Washington. And so violence becomes a kind of dogma. And that's also why you see number two contender Ron DeSantis, who's Really, the guy is obsessed with violence. I mean, he loses no opportunity to talk about violence. And it's not just that, you know, he says, we're going to be slitting throats on day one. This is, you know, gangster talk. This is how Duterte talks or terrorists talk. But, you know, he, he just like, it's the little things that show you that he feels he can only get ahead by espousing violence. When Trump was being arraigned and the reporter asked DeSantis, you know, what were you doing? Did you see it? Did you watch it? And he said, he, now he's a governor of a really large state. He has lots to do. What does he say? He said, I was overseeing an execution. So it's just this constant recall to violence and like they're drunk on the power of being able to have the authority to order violence or encourage violence. So that's what I'm most worried about as a constitutive party, of the GOP. And a scholar
3: Will you back up to tell the story of sort of how you realized that this thing you studied was about to sort of become the central tenant of one of our political parties?
6: Yeah. So I, you know, I'm a, I am was a garden variety academic. Let's say I was already writing for CNN on like historical things. So I I had started to do like, you know, opinion pieces. But I was a scholar of fascism and propaganda. And then Trump came on the scene and it all seemed so familiar from my studies of Mussolini. And again, I wrote a book on film propaganda. So the visual was important. So I saw him doing the loyalty oath. And then the big red flag was his speech in January 2016 that he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and he wouldn't lose any followers. This is fascism because he was saying He was identifying himself with violence, saying he approved of violence. He was personally capable of violence, but he would also be loved. If he committed violence. Yes. That led me to change my professional life. I I had a book I was working on that was an academic book and I put it aside and I started to warn, I wanted to warn the American public of what was going on and that it could happen anywhere. And that was the genesis of deciding to write strongmen, which goes over 100 years of authoritarian history, but has Trump in it. So Americans could see that this has a history and has a context.
3: Such a good point. So talk to me about when we talk about this idea that criminals are needed in government if the goal is authoritarian rule. What does that mean exactly?
6: It's so strange because the concepts come from the corruption chapter of strongmen. And it's like like the GOP is just bringing it to life. Incredible. So if you are a party that's becoming autocratic and you are depending on corruption, which means both like defrauding people like George Santos is the embodiment of part of the GOP. It also means lying to the public, institutionalized lying where you have lying as dogma, that's the big lie and all the other things. If that's how you're going to operate and you're going to depend on that, then you need special kind of people with criminal skills as your elite. So there's a kind of renewal of elites that goes on. And again, this is not just us. Like in Modi's India in 2019, over a dozen legislators, like sitting parliamentarians, had open like criminal charges against them, including murder. So, And there are many other examples I give in my book. So I've been watching this with the GOP and who is, you know, so there were people, for example, people who participated in January 6th were encouraged to run for office by Trump or people who another form of corruption is when you obstruct justice. And that's like Jim Jordan. He didn't want any investigation of molesters, that kind of thing. So the GOP now rewards people who are lawless or encourage lawlessness. And that's been like a renewal of elites. And it's terrible because the qualities that they want in a politician, that's also why GOP candidates pose with assault rifles. You either have to be violent or corrupt or both.
3: It's so amazing. And one of the things I'm, I'm struck by is just how good these people are at winning the information wars. I mean, talk to me about that. Some of this stuff is so simple, but it works so well for them.
6: It does. They are very skilled. And it's not just the Fox media machine, it's the individual politicians who kind of do this naturally. And in a sense, if you have decided to just institutionalize lying in the party, then you have to become information warriors. Of course, we can poke fun at Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, but she's a very skilled information warrior. She knows what to say and how to say it, and she uses the classic techniques of smearing, innuendo, conspiracy theories. And Jim Jordan, surprisingly, people don't think highly of him for many good reasons, but he's surprisingly skilled at defending Trump, which is also a sign of this. You must defend the leader. There are rules for these things. It's like they're innately good, but that's at it because they're invested now in lying as a party method of getting to power.
3: I know we've talked about this before, but now I'm so stressed out. (laughs) When we talk about this, I get very stressed out. I mean, how do we stop America from being the Philippines? It strikes me that one of the ways we would be so much safer is if we had a coalition government, which we don't.
6: That's a huge problem that we've just got these two giant parties. And so the people, the Republicans who they don't identify anymore, they don't really have a place to go. And but the other part, the reason they feel they don't have any place to go is the effectiveness of Right-wing media saying that Biden is a leftist. That we're all leftists. Like I'm on, you know, I'm on Professor Watchlist. That thing of turning. <laughs> is that the Charlie Kirk one? Yes, I was put on there, and it says not only uh, for all of us on there, you're not only a radical leftist, you're also trying to like indoctrinate students into your like credo. That's the polarization stuff. So, so in fact, there are lots of like moderates. And yet the people who don't identify anymore with Republicans are influenced so that they said, I'll never vote for for Democrats, and then they don't vote at all, perhaps. And that helps the Republicans, too. So that's one big problem. I think now is the time to everybody needs to reach out to people they know. Uh, including vets or people who care about national security, people who don't vote but should vote, and really use outcome arguments, I call them. Like political violence is not good for business if you know business people. Political violence is not good for national security if you know, you know, those people in those sectors. We have to all reach out to those we know and do bridge building when there's lots of bridge building organizations in America, but we can do this too. That's one thing that we can do in our lives.
3: And, you know, it's funny because it's like Netanyahu and the far right Republicans, which is basically all of them. But Tommy Tuberville, in this case, both very critical of the military, feeling the military is too woke and not, you know, racist, sexist discriminatory enough, even though the military has, through combat, seen how important it is to have leaders that look like the people on the ground. You know, they've actually really like lived the importance of diversity. But Republicans have been very involved in criticizing the military. And Tommy Tuberville has stopped all military appointments because of choice. Talk to us about that.
6: I think that's partially BS, his excuse. I have a tweet that went viral, it's still going on, that this is an attempt at sabotage. And it has to be seen in a broader optic, uh, together with Rand Paul, who's very pro-Putin, his blockage of diplomatic appointments, so that the U.S. remains singularly unprepared militarily, national security, diplomatically and its influence is curbed in the world. So when we talk about corruption, there some people commit corruption by by doing, you know, illegal things, and other people obstruct uh, obstruct processes from happening. And that's what those two are doing. So holding up so many military appointments, he knows what the outcome is and all, and that Millie has talked about it. It's very obvious. But the goal is to help America's adversaries who are autocratic by blunting the force of America in the world. And it's like it's a decapitation. Like we don't have ambassadors in a lot of very essential places, including many places in the Middle East right now. And we don't have heads of important military positions. This is sabotage. And this is why I. some people think this is exaggerated, but they are saboteurs. And the goal is to take down American democracy, not only internally, but as a force in the world. And it's exactly what the Chinese and Russians wanted in their joint statements in the fall of 2021, when they, they you know, did an op-ed together, the ambassadors, and then, then Putin and Xi, and they said, we've got to take down, essentially, said, we've got to take down American influence. And that's their, quote, multipolarity. And Tuberville and Paul are contributing to this. That's really how I see it. Jesus
3: with this Israel conflict how does this autocratic republican party figure in or
6: well, maybe it doesn't what we can see and i just published this morning a substack my, my substack lucid an essay on netanyahu's kind of what's his destiny going to be and how his autocratic overreach trying to have the it's called the judicial coup contributed to an atmosphere that led hamas feel it was propitious to attack, which is not to not blame Hamas for the atrocities, but to show that it's a lesson that Americans should take heed of and what happens when you have somebody who only cares about staying out of jail, which is the whole reason for Netanyahu's actions for a year almost and is something he has in common with Trump. Can you say more Netanyahu thought he had won the autocrats lottery because he was reelected as prime minister in December 2022 uh, with an ongoing corruption trial and multiple charges of fraud, bribery and and more. This this is like, again, it's in Strongman. It's so crazy. And the first thing you need to do is so you got to get back into office if you have indictments and then you need to fix the judiciary so you can't have to go to jail. So nothing happens to you. So that was the reason he did the judicial reform. And it it caused massive protests, including participation of military and security elites. And what we know from studies of how autocrats can fail is when military and security elites start to turn against you, that's really a problem for the autocrat. And that was happening to Netanyahu. So it left Israel much more divided and weaker, and he, yet he wouldn't give up, and he allied with these right-wing fanatics like Ben-Gvir, who fanned the flames. So that's the lesson. So, so my piece today that published is, what could his destiny be? And he's not really the right person to solve the problem, the structural problems that Israel has, because he's a strong man, and he's only interested in, his, in himself, really.
3: Exactly. It's such an interesting, I mean, it's such a, I don't want to say interesting because it's horrendous, but we are in such a perilous time in American life. And I feel like the international conflicts actually somehow make domestic life more perilous.
6: Yeah, it's all destabilizing because there are links with all these things. And that's why I'm always trying to stress that the GOP, you know, when Trump came in the first time, He he had two goals. One was to wreck democracy at home, but the other was to detach America from what's called democratic international order, right? And put it in. And that's why, oh, I love, love North Korean leader, love letters, you know, Putin is the greatest, she. And he's been trying through all his pronouncements about how great murderous autocrats are to change the perception and get Americans to see strongmen as positive and that will benefit him. And the GOP, even though so Trump's gone now, but the GOP's continuing this action. So it's all linked. It's what we're what's happening here is very, very linked to developments and autocracies abroad. I,
3: I wish this wasn't gonna be our problem forever and ever, but I assume it will be. <laughs>
6: I see us as uh, learning a lot from what is going on, and there's uh, a lot of good things happening in America as a result of reaction to repression.
3: From your mouth to God's ear, thank you so much. Anytime.
2: Josh Koskip is a lawyer who is suing the gun company Remington.
3: Welcome to Fast Politics, Josh.
7: Thank you, Molly.
3: I wanted to get you on the podcast because this is what happens. Everybody follows the New York Times. Of course, we do our own stuff here, but we also follow the New York Times. And one of the reasons why I did, why this story has been so interesting to me is because you know we have a lot of senators on this podcast, a lot of congresspeople, and I had Chris Murphy on a couple times, and I always ask him about the guns. And he had this hopefulness about it. And I was so shocked by that. You know, he had a certain sort of hope about changing things. And so when I read this story in the New York Times, the lawyer trying to hold gun makers responsible for mass shootings, I knew that I had to get you on this podcast. So explain to our listeners how you got here and just a little bit about your story.
7: Sure. Well, I started from a place of total ignorance about not just anything about guns or the gun industry, but about the law, the special protections that the gun industry has from our, our government from lawsuits. And I'm a lawyer, but didn't know anything about it. So I was effectively a clean slate and knew less than zero. And and of course, initially thought of that as a handicap. But there may have been a silver lining in that. To your point about Chris Murphy, uh, it. it probably made me more optimistic than I had any right to be. But I sort of stumbled on the case because being in Connecticut, of course, I wanted to do anything I could to help the families and then happened to be getting a ride from somebody to an airport who knew one of the families. That's how I got the case in the first place.
3: We're talking about the families of, tell our listeners.
7: So our firm represented nine families of the shooting. These are families who lost either children or adult loved ones and educators. And the nine families that brought the suit that we represented, they were, this was the only lawsuit filed. So the balance of the families didn't participate in the lawsuit. The case that I was involved with was the case following the Sandy Hook school shooting. And those of you in Connecticut and elsewhere, of course, everywhere across the country probably knew where they were when they first heard of the shooting. And in that case, in in that shooting, of course, there were 26 people killed, 20 children and six adults. And in the aftermath of that shooting, as a Connecticut lawyer, I was consulted on by some of the families, sort of by happenstance, and then uh, to start developing ideas about how uh, we could go about bringing them some measure of accountability and closure, if you will, Although uh, that's an elusive thing when you're talking about a mass shooting.
3: I want you just to talk a little bit more about Sandy Hook because it is it was one of the sort of bleakest. I mean, it's hard to pick you know, the bleakest, but one of the bleakest mass shootings. But it also happened in a state where you had opportunities because of being in Connecticut that you might not have in a state like Texas.
7: Well, I think one of the sad truths is that there was also the apparent opportunity for essentially a child, although adult by legal definition, a child by evolution to acquire an AR-15. and.
3: But you had legal opportunities that you would not have had in a red state.
7: In Connecticut, we had some advantage that other states might not have, so to speak, or, or some less disadvantage, I should say, because the federal immunity law, so the law that we were really confronted with in this case, applies to all states. So you've got to get through that regardless of what type of state you're in, to bring a lawsuit in a case of a mass shooting. And Connecticut has some laws that you can work with. And the accomplishment, I guess, in our case was that we were able to use one of those laws to get us through this federal protection.
3: So explain that a little more.
7: Sure. Um, All states have consumer protection laws that basically apply to businesses doing commerce in their state. It's a way for consumers to take on big corporate interests who are engaged in wrongdoing in your state. And typically, or oftentimes, these consumer protection statutes are afforded and can be used by people who are in a business relationship. So for example, if somebody bought a gun in a state and there was unethical marketing and it caused somebody to buy a gun and the gun malfunctioned or the gun went off or whatever. But the purchaser of the weapon was injured in some way. The purchaser might be able to bring a direct cause against the gun company because they were in a relationship, a business relationship. would also apply to competing gun companies. The question in our case was, does it apply to third parties who were aggrieved in the way that These family members were aggrieved in the shooting, you know, that were killed in the shooting. And in our state, there is no requirement that the law be limited to those who are in a direct business relationship. And that's what the Supreme Court of Connecticut held. Now, other states written into these laws, these consumer protection laws, other states actually say in the law, effectively, that you need to be in a business relationship with the defendant. So that wouldn't work. Our theory arguably wouldn't work in those states.
3: So what happens now? I mean, what are the larger implications of what you've done in this Sandy Hook situation?
7: Well, I'm a lawyer who represents people who, whose lives have been turned up to side down. And I'm not a politician and I'm not in any kind of an advocacy or public interest type group. The hope of the of the tort system in general, in this case and specifically, if this this case more than any other, is that as a result of having to be held accountable for the harm that was caused, that not only brings a measure of justice and accountability to the families, but it also uh, has a substantial ripple effects within the gun industry in this case, or industries that serve as underwriters of the gun industry.
3: You know, if you take a drug, a medicine, and it makes you sick, then you can often sue the company that made you sick. But if you are shot in a mass shooting, there isn't the same kind of consumer protection, for lack of a better word.
7: I mean, you you pretty much nailed it. I mean, that's the concept is that Victims of mass shootings and other shootings, for that matter, are not only aggrieved in in the most uh, horrific ways, typically, but also are treated as second class citizens under the law because of the unique protections given to the gun industry. And as a corollary to that, the gun industry is treated with uh, kid gloves, given special treatment and protections by government which I, when I learned about this, I thought was super ironic. I mean, here's an industry that rails against the federal government, you know, and they get a yet, yet their biggest big buddy is the federal government, but that's the reality.
3: We have this very insane Supreme Court. Doesn't it seem like something that they are going to get involved in? Does that worry you?
7: Well, I've heard people say that, and I think that With respect to that sort of thought, I think that just speaks to the inability of the public in general to distinguish between something political in terms of guns and something commercial. One of the things that I was acutely aware of, because I've done it myself, is that once you hear guns, we're just programmed to go right to Second Amendment, you know, good guy with guns, Supreme (laughs) Court. We've been so programmed. And it does have a political component. And I was aware of that. But, you know, there's also this separate thing, which is the the obligation of corporate America to behave like adults and to show some concern and, re, and act responsibly with respect to the way they conduct business. And especially when it comes to matters that pose a grave risk to the public and public safety. And yes, it's true that guns may have enjoyed this sort of what many of us feel is a distortion of of constitutional law and protection. But that doesn't alleviate the obligation of those that profit from guns to behave like responsible corporate citizens, if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, no, it does. And in fact, it's funny because it's like we are in this period of a Supreme Court that is their whole idea of this sort of originalism is that if the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, if they didn't have gun control in there, then it doesn't exist. And, you know, you should be able to beat your wife.
7: Yeah, I know. It's crazy.
3: But it is this idea of consistency in legislation and Consumer protection is like one of the sort of things, I mean, American life is is built on being able to sue people when they do something you don't like.
7: To state the obvious point, that the common law upon w- which we inherited predated our Constitution and mm-hmm. was endorsed by our Constitution. So there are lots of things in play here. And there's lots of you could spend, I'm sure, hours taking apart the reasoning of the Supreme Court's recent decision in Bruin. But, you know, among many other things, I mean, the types of weapons that they're dealing with in cases today didn't even exist in those times. So that ought to right there invalidate any comparison, my view.
3: Yeah. But I think it is a really good point. The thing I'm struck by when when we cover things like this is, and again, it's not political, but it is, but everything is political. There are so many people on the conservative side who have been working on legislation via the Supreme Court. For example, I think of 303 Creative, right? You know, she never made the websites. She probably never will. I mean, do you worry about that? And also, are there reverberations from what you do that could be used in that way to shift legislation?
7: If I put on my parent hat, I worry about it. And my love of America hat, I worry about it for all of us. And for especially, you know, people I love, and for my country. In terms of my lawyer lane hat here, even for this Supreme Court, it would be it would be an extreme overreach to try to reach into litigation like that, which we had in Sandy Hook, and claim it as somehow impairing some constitutional right that they've made up. To be fair, I think that the Supreme Court recognized that when they looked at the application to have this case heard by them and denied it. If I were you, I'd be asking you the same questions. But I think this discussion it just as more evidence of how everything about guns ends up in the same place in these camps. You know, there's the pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment folks, and then there's the quote-unquote common-sense gun reform folks, or or as the other side says, the gun grabbers, yeah. or as the you know, common-sense side says, you know, the gun crazies or gun nuts. I mean, so it just, it gets there, and it, we all end up at the doorstep of the Supreme Court anyway. But if you think about it, well, in our case, basically, we were saying, look, it's just wrong for any company, especially a company that sells AR-15s, to try to brand themselves with children and teenagers and work around the parents and get to their kids and establish a relationship that is built on solving their problems with violence and lone gunman assaults. That's wrong, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or gun person or not. So, You know, that should have nothing to do with the political questions that seem to put us in this permanent state of really uh, inability to, to move forward in any direction politically.
3: So in these lawsuits, you find a lot of times things in discovery. Talk to us about the discovery process.
7: The big, I guess, achievement of the case was when the Supreme Court of Connecticut said, yes, you can go forward with this case. Up until that, and a lot of people who looked at the case from the outside thought that the chances were virtually nil. They didn't see what we saw. But in any event, that was a prevailing view. And that was a prevailing view of the gun industry. So they've never really had to get to that next step. And I think your listeners may not be familiar with the sequence of things. It's complicated. You know, first thing is you have to do is you have to uh, gather information yourself of what's publicly available. And you put together a story I always think of as a complaint, like the story of the case. And you'd find the law that fits with that story and the facts that you know them. And you file that lawsuit. And most, most lawsuits then go forward into what's called discovery, where you get the documents or information that you need from the person you're bringing the lawsuit against. When it comes to guns and suing the gun industry, they have this special protection. And this is the protection that was given by Congress in 2005. And under the special protection, the gun industry is allowed to try to dismiss the case and shut it down right from the start. So right after you file that complaint and tell your story based on what you understand the facts to be, the gun industry then moves to shut it down and dismiss the case. And they were very, very successful at that up until the Sandy Hook lawsuit. The importance of that is if you shut down the case before you get to this second part where where you get to find out and get information from the other side, it means you get to keep your secrets of how you do business hidden because you, this process gets shut down before you get there. So in our case, after the Supreme Court of Connecticut greenlit part of the case, and after the Supreme Court denied reviewing after the United States Supreme Court denied reviewing the Connecticut Supreme Court's decision, we were then allowed to get into that second part of the process, which was discovery, which literally means discovering things from the other side. So in this case, what I knew, Molly, I didn't know what we were going to find, to be honest. All I knew is that we were headed into what I've described as like a dark underground cave, yeah, that nobody had ever been to before, and the only people who'd been there are people in the gun industry. What I knew we needed to do was to make sure that we drove a truck through that opening and try to find as much our way through that cave in as much detail as possible. And more to be less allegorical about it, like I just wanted to get all the all the stuff we could right <laughs> while we could, because the family's case and to a person, to a family, you know, amazing in a mass shooting, we tend to lump victims of mass shootings into one block like they they're all that means they're all for gun reform or all for these laws and they're politically different like the people they were before but the one thing the families the nine families shared was the goal of trying to learn as much as they could about this industry and shed light on it in order to hopefully prevent the next sandy hook and so this was a critical part of the whole endeavor. And so, you know, even if we had proceeded with the case and it didn't go anywhere after we were able to get through into this, this dungeon or this uh, cave, it would have been a victory to get this information and to be able to share it with the public.
3: So what was it?
7: We now know what went on behind closed doors of what had become the world's biggest gun conglomerate for a period of time. You know, the decisions that were made in the boardrooms in terms of how to market, how to expand the market what techniques and schemes to use to bring in a younger and younger demographic when they were facing increasing competition. We know that they pivoted towards AR-15s because of the high margin and profit that they provided. We know that a private equity firm called Cerberus was heavily involved in the transformation of the American gun industry. We know that, uh, I mean, you might have asked yourself as I have as a parent, how come I never heard of an AR-15 when I was growing up, right? Right. But every 12-year-old now knows what one is. That's not accidental, but that comes as a result of what was a very clever, very concerted, and very greedy effort to sell as many AR-15s to as many people as they could.
3: Jesus. When you saw this, were you just shocked?
7: I mean, I was and I wasn't because, frankly, I didn't expect much out of the the gun industry. I mean, I didn't really know much about the gun industry, again, because I didn't really know wasn't an area of focus of mine. But I learned that the gun industry in many ways was no different than any other industry that was profit driven. But in some way, in some critical ways it was. Whereas if you got behind the doors of if you went into a boardroom of a a car manufacturer, a car company like Ford, you know, there's gonna be a safety division. There's gonna be somebody in that in each meeting that's gonna say, hey, can we do this? Is it really safe? What are the implications to public safety, right? Cars can right. be pretty dangerous. You know, should we really be marketing them to children to run over people? And you're going to get a more, you're going to get a more a diversity and you'll have a ethical and moral governor on all kind of in the boardrooms, that's utterly lacking in the gun industry. There's no pushback to anything. There's It's a no-holds-barred industry. That's what I learned. I guess because uh, we could all see the finished product, like you probably saw the man card advertising that promoted masculinity and owning an AR-15. You know, that doesn't happen by accident. So I didn't expect much, but I think that to the extent I was shocked it was the cognitive dissonance between what they were doing and the effects we're seeing in our communities, number one. And number two is just the utter lack of anybody or any even structural thing in place that looked at public safety or any implications of their scheme to make money. And the other thing is that, you know, whereas I think of greed and as a bad thing, This particular gun conglomerate, which was the brainchild of this private equity firm, existed for one reason and one reason only. And that was to try to build a billion dollar revenue company that they could then go public with, a gun company. So that was their first, second and third goal was to make money and by their own testimony and admission. And, you know, bad things happen when people lose their way in an effort simply to accumulate wealth at the cost of everything else. And really bad things happen when those people sell AR-15s and other types of firearms to children or try to brand themselves to children. It just It speaks to the desperation and the lengths in which people go to. So I wouldn't point to one individual as being a bad person or their fathers and families. Everybody in the gun industry mostly has family members that they care about. There's just this cognitive dissonance and refusal to see or even evaluate the implications of what they're doing.
3: Josh, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back.
7: I'd love to, Bali. Thank you. And now, your moment of fuckery.
3: Hi, it's Molly Fast, and you're getting the moment of fuckery on the run today. I am Can you use this moment to talk about everyone's soldier Nancy Mace, who told Jake Tapper on CNN that she knew plenty of Democrats who trusted Jim Jordan. I... S- promise you, there is not a single Democrat who trusts Jim Jordan. And that incredible Nancy Mace lie is your moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.